Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is all the science that you can handle coming to you through your radio or podcast device um, on the Community Radio Network and on other channels. We are everywhere. Anyway, my name is Chris and this week I am looking at a story that has been in the news, but you may not have seen it. I think this one, it's one of those stories that you'd think would be huge news, but I think there's a fair bit of scepticism about it. Oh, it went under the radar, did it? Yeah, it may have gone under the radar. Um, It is supposedly a fossil discovery of the day, nay, maybe even the very hour that the dinosaurs went extinct, allegedly. So um, they, they allegedly went extinct, or allegedly no, okay. it's the day they did. Okay, well, okay. So we're talking. Pretty sure they did. Okay, we're talking non-avian dinosaurs. I mean, okay. certain dinosaurs did not yes, go extinct, yes, obviously. Obviously, you know, shout out to the birds again, always. But um, no, this is like one of the theories of how dinosaurs went extinct, which is the asteroid impact, and this fossil site allegedly shows the impact of the fossil impact, the effect of the fossil impact. Anyway, I'll explain it in laborious detail in a few minutes. So um, They found a T-Rex and his watch had stopped. <laughs> no? <laughs> How would he look at that? Anyway. Um, it was a pocket watch. Okay. <laughs> Claire, what have you got for us? Well, I've got a special guest in the studio this week. Dr. Dwan Price from Deakin University. She's going to be coming in and having a chat with us about her research, which is all around allergens, specifically food allergens, specifically peanut allergies and what they do and how they get from the gut into um, or like, you know, into our mouth and then into the gut and then actually into our bloodstream to create an immune response. And an allergic reaction. Yeah, so, so why why are they why are people so allergic to them? Yeah, well why people are so allergic to them, um, but also how how do they get yeah, how do they get in? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, be warned then people, this show may contain traces of nuts. Stew. <laughs> <laughs> On with the show. Gosh. So, I am talking today about a sensationalised new discovery that allegedly records the day or even the hour that dinosaurs, sorry, non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. So, um, when you say discovery, just for everyone who is not in the studio, you put your fingers up in inverted commas and did sort of like rabbit's ears around discovery. Yeah, and that's, I'm not actually saying this is not a real thing. Like, if it is what it's claimed to be, it's going to be huge, but there's also a lot of hype and makes it hard to be to judge. You kind of it's one of the things I think you have to wait for the scientific dust to settle. So, so someone's the, someone's claiming that they know when the exact time that dinosaurs. Well, it's not about the exact time they found fossil evidence of it. But look, let's let's look at this in detail because we need to look. I need to set the scene. Okay, we've okay. got a bit of history to catch up. We've got something like sixty-six million years of history to catch up on for this, right? Whew, strap in. Yeah. So okay, you know that the dinosaurs went extinct. The non-avian dinosaurs. Sorry, shout out to the birds. Non-avian <laughs> yes. dinosaurs went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous period, right? And that was 66 million years ago. 
Now, is that is that 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 is what made the end of the Cretaceous period, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, right. yeah. and yeah, what causes it this extinction is one of those. I guess it's in the popular imagination. It's one of those big scientific questions, and there are all sorts of theories floating around until, well, okay, so we've talked. No, I talked before about how physicists like to think they know everything and they move into other fields and just take it over. <laughs> so in 1980, physicist, Nobel Prize winning physicist Luis Alvarez, together with his son Walter, published a theory that an asteroid strike may have caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. He right. didn't win the Nobel Prize for this. He won it for inventing the bubble chamber, which allows you to see particle collisions. But he went, I thought, Nobel Prize, I can go and solve the dinosaur extinction. I thought Willy Wonka invented the bubble chamber. <laughs> no, different bubble chamber. Different bubble chamber. Right. But the reason for this theory was because at the end of the Cretaceous, uh, the boundary at the end of the Cretaceous, they call it the, the KPG or the KT boundary, K for the Cretaceous, even though it starts with a C, and PG is the Paleogene, which is the next period in the geologic record, also used to be known as the tertiary period, hence the KT. So it's still often called the KT boundary, even though it's no longer the tertiary period. You following? Yes. Yep. Yep. At this boundary, there is a thin layer you find all over the world, this thin layer that's rich in the element iridium. An element that is rare in the Earth's crust, but is found commonly in space rocks. Oh. And there are also other features like tectites. It's like, it's like um, the asteroid's calling card. Yeah. There are other features like tectites, which are these little kind of glass spheres with a rock that has kind of been, been thrown up in the atmosphere and melted. Marbles. And, yeah, a bit like marbles. Not necessarily as big as marbles, though. Also a calling card. So they based on this evidence, and they, they said how oh, this asteroid could have, you know, wiped out the dinosaurs. And the theory then was reinforced about a decade later when there was a, an impact crater identified, the Chicxulub impact crater on the Yucatan Peninsula. So that's around Mexico. That's in Mexico, yeah. And for most people, that kind of was case closed because it's a nice big... Simple story explaining the It is. Great. Love it. But not everyone agreed. There were some geologists, supposedly, some who... Some people what, who dedicated their life, not just blown in as a physicist. Yeah, and they objected to a physicist. What a surprise. <laughs> and there was an alternative hypothesis. This is the Deccan Traps. Have you heard of the Deccan Traps? No, it sounds less um, straight and, you know, straight. I don't know. It, sounds like a, it sounds like a northern UK... I don't know, hip-hop outfit or something. <laughs> what it is, it's an enormous volcanic deposit that's found in India, what's today's India. Uh, and it's huge. It covers about 500,000 square kilometres. There is basalt up to two kilometres thick in places. It is enormous. And this volcanic eruption would have led to incredible emissions of greenhouse gases, which would cause you know massive climate change. And this sort of thing we believe has happened before in Earth's history. The, the biggest mass extinction event in Earth's history was, a, was about um, 252 million years ago. There was a Permian-Triassic event, and that is believed to have been caused by similar eruptions of the Siberian traps. So there's reason to believe that massive volcanic eruptions like this will cause devastation to, to the climate. And there's also the interesting observation that although the, the, the dinosaur fossils, which is what we're interested in here, they seem to disappear well before this iridium layer, this KPG boundary, which suggests that the extinction was well underway before the asteroid actually hit. Right. So it wasn't actually at the KT boundary. Well, that's the thing. The KT boundary is the clear end of the Cretaceous, but the dinosaur fossils taper off. How, how much so they taper off is not totally clear from the, the research I've been able to do. But there was a paper published a couple of months ago, actually, in February 2019, that suggested that these two events may have been related. Because when they look at the, the peak of the eruptions, the Deccan Traps, it was pretty close to the impact event. It was about 50,000 years close. Wow. So they're suggesting that maybe, <laughs> that maybe that the asteroid kind of set off 
some of the eruption. It also, coincidentally, the eruptions were pretty much on the other side of the Earth to the asteroid strike. So they're suggesting there may have been a connection there. But even so, there would have been some eruptions before the asteroid struck. The climate change would have been well underway and the poisonous gases would have been being emitted. But it's kind of going, oh, maybe both people are right. Anyway, so that was the situation a couple of, couple of months ago. Then there's the latest announcement. So this is due to fossils that were found at a site in North Dakota. The lead author is someone called Robert De Palma. Not Robert Palmer, um, but... Um, that, not, not Brian De Palma's brother? No, no, of course not, Stu. It's actually Brian De Palma's second cousin. <laughs> is it really? Seriously. <laughs> You're starting to see where this is going. Yeah. Um, okay, so this site apparently has a lot of marine creatures found inland where there should have been fresh water, and they're also mixed up with all kinds of vegetation. Um, you find tectites. There's little tiny impact craters of tectites hitting the ground, but also tectites supposedly in the gills of some of the fish. And supposedly there are even dinosaur fossils, including perfectly preserved feathers and even eggs, which suggests that the dinosaurs were far from extinct when this happened. Now, there was a bit of a puzzle how you would have both tectites and um, a wave, because if you, the tectites should have arrived long before a tsunami would have hit from Mexico in this site. But so now they're saying it's kind of a thing they call a seish wave, which is where the, the earthquake from the eruption would set off oscillations in the body of water and be enough to wash the fish around. Anyway, that's a little detail trying to justify why there was a big wave. Anyway, that's not what we're interested in. Um, what we're interested in, in is some of the red flags around this discovery. First of this is this discovery was not announced in uh, a scientific journal. It was kind of first publicised in the New Yorker magazine, published on April Fool's Day, uh, oh. an article called The Day the Dinosaurs Died. When I saw this in the news, I thought, oh, this has got to be a joke. But no, it turns out it's not a joke. Um, but the, the article is quite lengthy. It goes into a lot of detail about Robert De Palma. And he is an interesting guy. Like, he fancies himself as an Indiana Jones-type character. And I don't just mean that metaphorically. Apparently, in the story, he plays the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme tune when he turns up in his car. He named the fossil site Tanis after the city where the Lost Ark was in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's only out by 60-odd million years to, to be in the same even ballpark, but okay. Yeah, he's a, he's a PhD candidate, but he's been um, studying for his PhD for many years now without completing it. He keeps tight hold of any fossils he finds, a bit more so than most people do in the discipline. And he's notorious for a previous discovery of a dinosaur skeleton called Dakota Raptor, which turned out to have turtle bone mixed up in the nearly complete <laughs> skeleton. So there's a lot of doubt about this guy. And this is concerning. And when you get overhyped discoveries like this, they turn out to be suspect. You know, when you have like a lot of press attention before the thing is examined. Yeah. yeah. And people point out that we've had this before, like in paleontology. About 10 years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a fossil that was much publicised. It was called Ida. Um, the, from the genus Darwinius, yep. meant to be the missing link in human evolution. Yeah. And this would change everything, they said. And I think most people have forgotten about it by now. Mm. Yeah. Did it change anything? No, it didn't change anything. <laughs> so anyway, Lies. but there, look, there has actually since been a scientific article published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It describes only a fraction of the sensational findings outlined in the New Yorker article. Uh, it only mentions one dinosaur bone, uh, and that's just in a supplement to the article, and it's kind of presented as it could have been washed in from somewhere else. So it's... So far, the published scientific results are not as stunning as the New Yorker article claimed it was. Um, some people have said that it shouldn't be called dino killer wave. It should just be called fish pile because that's what he discovered was a pile of fish. Anyway, we can't say it's not uh, a real thing, though. There may be more papers to come, so watch out for it. And it's not just him working on it as well. Um, in fact, one of the co-authors is Walter Alvarez, who is the son of Luis Alvarez and was kind of the co-author of the original um, impact theory. So, you know, there's, there's a big, some big names there. 
But I just think there's good reason to be sceptical to wait and see how it turns out. I mean, science and sensation make an appealing mix, but not necessarily a healthy one. Yeah, let's just hope it doesn't turn out to be his last crusade. <laughs> You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. A lot has been reported recently about the increase in food allergies in our population. And my guest today knows more than most people about this. Specifically about peanut allergies. She's an expert, Dr. Dwan Price from Deakin University. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. Now, Duan, let's start with the basics. I say peanut allergies, I say allergies, but what is an allergy? Yeah, right. That's a really great question. So an allergy, to put it quite simply, is an overreaction of our immune system to foreign entities. So that is particles and let's say things like food or dust or even pollen that our immune system would react to compared to a normal response. And is there something that makes certain allergens, like peanuts for one thing, make them more reactive? What makes an allergen compared to a non-allergen, for example? So my work focuses on food allergy. So just to use food allergy as a really good example, allergens tend to be very robust. And when we talk about an allergen, it is... It is a protein, so I'm not talking along the lines of a piece of steak. It is a small, (laughs) tiny little molecule. And what makes them very robust is they tend to be really tightly packaged. Think of it like if you tied your shoes with 50 knots instead of just one. They are so hard to undo. And what makes them quite clever, I'm reluctant to say clever because allergens seem to be the nemesis, (laughs) What makes them quite clever is that they have several obstacles that they have to pass. And when I say obstacles, I mean, well, firstly, they have to be treated in the manufacturing process. So heated, boiled, cooked, they have to withstand that. Secondly, they're chewed in the mouth. They've got to make it through that. And the associated enzymes that we have in our mouth as well, they start breaking that food down. Likewise, they break the allergen down. They have to make it through the high acid in our stomach. Of course, yeah. And the digestive enzymes. Yep. And, you know, those acid, the acid and the enzymes, they're all geared up to break food down. That's their job. Exactly. So allergens, when I say they're quite clever, they manage to make it through relatively unscathed. And so by the time they make it to the intestine, which is where they need to cross that barrier to make it to the immune system for the very first time, depending on the age of the person, they will be in different forms. So, for example, if that allergen is eaten by a, let's say, a, an infant, then those allergens would be in a more of a normal unbroken down state compared to an adult because our guts are slightly different. So why is it that the peanut allergies are so much worse? Or we hear that, you know, people have a really big reaction to peanut allergies compared to maybe other types of food allergies. 
Um, yeah, of course. Um, but, yeah. yeah, so quite often you often hear that people are, they have a fatal anaphylactic reaction to peanuts where other individuals might just be mildly allergic to egg or milk, for example. I think it's really related to the cons- the amount of allergen that is that elicits an immune response. So with peanuts in particular, we're talking trace amounts. It could be if somebody has eaten a peanut butter sandwich, the residue left over on the lips kissed to an infant, for example, could cause a reaction. Wow. And when you're talking about a reaction, you're talking about those tiny proteins that are wrapped so tightly getting into their system. Exactly. Yep, that's right. So enough enough to be able to transfer even a you know, might trace amounts of allergens that can elicit an immune response. What drew you to food allergens in general? That is a bit of a journey, I would suppose. So I grew up in the country and as a naive country girl, I suppose my I had an interest in the human body and I really liked puzzles and I was a smart kid. So I thought naturally I would study medicine. Um <laughs> And a couple of people have told me I don't have a very good bedside manner. So that probably was a bit of a <laughs> – that was a bit of a career path. I hope they were good, good, good friends of yours. Yeah, I'm married to one of them. Okay. Um, uh, during my undergrad, I, at the end of that undergraduate journey, I think I was left with unanswered questions, especially about immunology and allergies. So I started an honours year and I really wanted to learn about uh, – what the digestive process actually does to allergens in um, in general, and whether that affects their allergenicity. And when allergenicity, I say when yeah. I say allergenicity, it's like ooh, it's like <laughs> sciencey term. That just means the the strength of an allergen's response to elicit a an immune response. So a high or a low allergenicity would be a high response or a low response. So very dependent on the person. Yeah, and the exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so then that led me to further opening of doors of unanswered questions. And I suppose you could say I fell into a PhD because I had all of these unanswered questions. And yes, that led me to looking at how those allergens actually managed to make it across the gut lining. Right. And so that's what um, that's what your PhD was about? That's correct, yeah. What did you actually do and what did you find? How do they make it across the gut lining and how do you (laughs) figure that out? All right. So to figure that out, quite simply, you need to build a model of the gut lining. Oh, great. In in your sink or in your lab? (laughs) It was definitely in the lab, but I quite often do use kitchen analogies because Everyone likes to cook. Yeah, and there is an association between your gut and cooking. And food. And yeah, yeah, it all food. makes sense. It's yeah. a good storyline. So first of all, I had to grow intestinal cells, and we grow them on a really fine mesh. And I, I usually use the analogy of in a sieve because that has holes and people can relate to that. So the cells, we grow in a really nice thin layer, and then they that thin layer really mimics how they are inside us. We have a single lining of intestinal cells and to those I can add peanuts to the top and I don't mean that I will go out and get a packet of Nobby's nuts and just sprinkle a few on top. They have to be treated in the lab first, you know, remove the salts and break them up to make sure that they're tiny little dusty particles, if that makes sense. So 
sort of replicating all of those processes that you were talking about before. Exactly. They have to you can't just add a whole peanut that's no. never going to. It's <laughs> that is the equivalent of like trying to get the earth to get through a tiny little sewage hole. It's not going to work. Right. So you have to break them down to their tiny little particles that is the allergen sized particles and then add them to the cells and then we look at them really really Really, 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 really closely. Okay. Using microscopy. So using a giant fancy microscope. You're listening to Lost in Science, where Claire is talking to Dwan Price about how allergens get into our immune system through our guts. Um, and so you're actually seeing what's happening at the cellular level in real time? Not necessarily real time. Um, I do have to fix them, that is, or kill them. So kill them, okay. Yeah, scientists yep. can be a little bit sinister in that respect. They are only cells, it's okay. Yeah, they yeah. are. Um, although I did sing to them because I often thought that <laughs> singing to them will keep them happy and then they won't spitefully die on me. Right, okay. <laughs> I hope that worked. I think it did. I passed my PhD. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Um, yeah, so. And so what did you find after you, you looked at them, you saw, you know, what was happening at that, um, microscopic level with the allergens passing through the intestinal tract? Yep, exactly. So found a, I found a couple of things actually. So first of all, I found that they stuck really hard to the surface of the intestinal cells. The allergens did. Yeah, they did. And you know, if you can naturally think if you stick something to a surface, you're naturally going to increase the ability for that entity or that allergen, for example, to pass through. Secondly, uh, I found that these allergens, they actually make that lining a little bit leaky. Whoa, okay. And they do that by manipulating or changing the special bonds that hold those intestinal cells together. Right, so they squeeze through this middle, like yeah, so squeeze through the, we the didn't, cells? I didn't or? specifically see them squeezing through, like trying to part <laughs> Part, part, their, the part the cells to, apart, but in a Moses mole- allergen in, style. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, there was definitely no Moses happening. <laughs> but in this respect, they they managed to unlock unlock that bond, which means that there's a change in current. So some allergens were managed to pass through, and when I say some, peanuts unfortunately have quite a few. There is a, at least twelve. There's probably a few more that have popped up just as we've been talking. You're talking about different specific different allergens, types of allergens, types of allergens in the peanut, right? Okay, yep. so that means that different people who have peanut allergies could be allergic to different parts of the peanut. Exactly. Allergy. Yep. So wow. in peanuts, there tends to be two main ones that we talk about, and the other allergens they're very structurally similar to the two main ones. So most of the research is really focused on the two main ones, uh, like my research was. And generally, because the structure of the others is so similar, we can usually gauge that the other allergens will have probably very similar responses. Right. And they all have this ability to make the intestinal lining slightly leaky. Really good question. So we are not positive at the moment which particular allergens have the capacity to do that. I personally believe it's a combination of all of them working in unison, like an evil tribe of allergens, all working together to get to some very sinister <laughs> motive. End, yeah. End of the air. Yeah, big <laughs> sinister motive. Right. 
And then once they do get through, that means they can then... They access the immune system. They access the immune system and they create that immune response. Exactly. When an immune reaction occurs, it's not necessarily the first time that the allergens meet the immune system. It's usually the second and subsequent times that those allergens meet. The first time is about priming. So the immune system learns all about exterior particles. When I say fat, I'm talking about food. And that includes all the microbes in our gut too. With what you found out about how peanut allergens access into the blood, yep. how can we then take your learnings and, like, and, and apply them? Exactly. How can we translate it? Well, what we learn is how they cross. And we can use those same mechanisms to be able to either A, stop them. We can't necessarily stop the actual passage that they cross because that's a crucial transport mechanism that the cells need. Yeah, we need, we need food. We need it. Yeah. We need food. That's just, yeah, if you yeah. stop those, we'll, you'll stop absorption. Yeah. And Throwing that's, the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's not the way to do it. But yeah. what we can do is because we've learned more about how these allergens are more allergenic, we can either... I don't want to say GMO, but I will. We can work to produce perhaps peanuts that have a lesser capacity to be able to transpose or cross this barrier compared to other nuts. Incredible. So now that was your um, that was your PhD research. It was. So now what's what's next for you, Duan? I'm actually working on thunderstorm axma at the moment. Sorry, what? (laughs) I know tangent. Um, Well, us scientists, we are very good at utilising the same kinds of technologies in different areas. So at the moment, my postdoc is actually working on thunderstorm asthma and I run the Deakin Airwatch program at the Burwood campus. Fantastic. Yeah, it's really fun. You get to be on the roof at the crack of dawn each morning collecting pollen. and, And when I say collecting pollen, people often have this... Heidi-like image of collecting flowers in the meadow. <laughs> it isn't like that up on the roof of Deakin no, University? No, it's not. It's, it's, it's quite a wind-blown rooftop and I work with it's, – it's like a miniature green windmill with a little um, pump on it that sucks in air and pollen and I collect that each morning. Right, and so with it, so you collect it each morning and then you make an assessment. During the pollen season. During yep. the pollen season, That's which correct. is? Through October. Yep. Through to December. Fantastic. Well, um, uh, now, Duane, how can people find out more about the research that you um, did for your PhD, your peanut allergy research and also your pollen research? Yep. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, you can look up my odd name at, on the Deacon website. You'll find me there under Dr. Duane Price. Also, um, Twitter at Duane Price. You'll find me there as well. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm always spamming science. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, Duan, thank you so much for coming and explaining your research today. I feel like I have a much better understanding of what these allergens really are, these little bound up tight little proteins. Best of luck for the future asthma research. Can you please come back and tell us a little bit more about it? Of course. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you again. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and as across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
We would love to hear from you. So if you please like getting in touch with us, please do so. You can drop us a line at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We are on Twitter as well. We are at Lost in Science 1, I believe. Uh, we're also on your friendly podcast app. If you're able to go on there and give us a good rating and review, please do so because it helps to tell other people that we're good and then maybe they will find us and like us as well and share the science love. Or if you want, you can just listen to us on the radio where we're on again at the same time every week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.